Hello, everybody. When I was asked to, uh, to speak about this subject, looking at Jesus through the lens of Moses, I thought, wow, that's some big topic. So I'm going to dispense with any preamble because I haven't got time for it. And I'm going to go straight into the main text that I want to consider tonight. And when you're looking to compare the ministry of Jesus with that of Moses, there's only one place that I thought I should start, and that's in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, I'm reading. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Jesus is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. I don't know whether you were born in this region or whether you've moved into it recently or in a while, a while past, but you can't fail to have noticed that loyalty to your football club is pretty fierce in this region, especially if you support either Newcastle or Sunderland. Woe betide if you are found wearing a black and white scarf in the midst of a red and white supporters, as I was in my youth when I went foolishly, went to Roker Park to see a derby match. I supported Newcastle. Yet I found when I moved to the Midlands for a year or two that I also supported the entire region. So if Sunderland were playing Birmingham City or Coventry City, I would support Sunderland. I wanted them to win. It was only if Newcastle and Sunderland were playing against each other that I would support Newcastle. Not that I wanted Sunderland to do badly, but I supported Newcastle even more. What's that got to do with what I'm talking about tonight? Well, I think that sort of dynamic gives us a little bit of an insight into what Hebrews is trying to say about the relationship between Jesus and Moses. You see, the early Christians faced two equal and opposite pressures. On the one hand, traditional Judaism believed that no one was greater than Moses. Moses was the prophet without peer in the Old Testament. The finest and truest tribute of Moses is given in Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Through Moses, God had given the law. He'd used Moses to transmit the whole religious system to Israel. And traditional Judaism was quite clear. This law was absolute. It was binding on God's people for all time. 
It was unalterable, inflexible, and unchanging. So if you took that line, the best you could say about Jesus was that he was bringing some new insight into what it meant to keep the law. But Moses would remain the senior partner, and the law would continue to determine the shape of God's people. That, of course, would mean that the new age brought in by God's Messiah had not yet arrived. On the other hand, there were plenty of new Christians, early Christians, who were so excited to think that the new age had indeed arrived that they wanted to move in the opposite direction as quickly as possible. They supported Jesus. Therefore, they had nothing good to say about Moses, nothing good to say about the law, and nothing good to say about Israel before Christ. We could say that they were so keen on supporting Newcastle that they wouldn't be afraid to see Sunderland completely fall off the map. But like the Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews, doesn't want to go in that direction. But he's equally clear that Jesus has indeed brought God's new age to birth so that the law and Moses can no longer have the final word. Hebrews says, Moses matters, but Jesus matters more. Moses was a true servant of God, but Jesus is God's son. You don't diminish Moses by making Jesus superior to him. You give Moses his rightful place, and it is a place of honor, if not the supreme honor. The word better occurs more in Hebrews than the whole of the New Testament put together. The writer is choosing passages from the Old Testament, which in effect are saying to traditional Judaism, what we have is good, but God is doing something better. What we have is true, but it isn't the whole truth. What we know at the moment is important, but the most important thing that we know is that God is planning to do something more. The whole letter is written in order to say there's something more, the whole truth, the better thing has now arrived in Jesus Christ. So whatever you do, don't go back to the old things. The whole purpose of the letter is to show that God was working out through the long years of Israel's history, including Moses and the Exodus, that it's really found its fulfillment, its goal with Jesus. With all of this in mind, I ended up asking myself three questions. And I'm going to try and answer those questions as best I can. The first one was, why was the old Mosaic covenant necessary before the new covenant was established? The second, what was Moses' faith based on 1,500 years before the birth of Christ? And the third, how should we respond to what Jesus has done, and particularly in the establishment of the new covenant? So the first question, why the old Mosaic covenant and the law? In the past weeks, we've seen that what is contained in the Old Testament, in history, in types, and in shadows, is often explained in the New Testament. We saw with Adam and with Abraham that at different ages in history, 
God has established various covenants in his relationship with mankind. The covenants are successive. Each makes way for another. Each age reveals more of God's will, his way, and his desires for humanity. And the order that God has established for the progression of truth is revealed in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. So the natural Mosaic law was given after the Abrahamic covenant of promise, but before the spiritual new covenant established by God's Son. In Galatians 3, verses 15 to 25, Paul seeks to explain why the old covenant, the law, was necessary. Now, this is a really dense piece of scripture, and we haven't time to go into it in detail. But let me try and praise the main points that Paul's trying to make here. He says, God's original intention was that Abraham should have a single worldwide family, a group who were not defined by their parentage or their ethnicity, but by their faith, faith in the Messiah who was to come. This promise of Abraham, to Abraham, comes first, and it had to stand until the promise was fulfilled. But Paul says that the law was a necessary part of the intervening period between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. He says the law was put in place in order to show us that the whole basis of our human life is wrong. It's wrong because of the sin nature that we've all inherited from Adam. He says mankind has been kept under God by the law, a prisoner of the law, which both reveals and stimulates sin. The law places demands on us that we cannot possibly accomplish. Nobody has ever kept the Ten Commandments just by doing their very best. And yet as a standard of life, the law will never change because it's simply an expression of the character and the attributes of God. And God never changes. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So the law wasn't abolished when Jesus came. He fulfilled the law. And part of that Mosaic law was that the people and the tabernacle were sanctified, were purified by the sprinkling of the blood of sacrificed animals. Again, Hebrews says, this is merely an earthly copy of the heavenly reality. Hebrews reminds us that it is Christ who is the mediator, who can touch both God and man, the God-man. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, we read, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The new covenant is laid in the blood of Jesus. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this was always God's plan. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the only person in the whole universe and for all eternity who could offer himself as that perfect, complete, and final sacrifice, never to be repeated. The main contrast that Hebrews makes between Moses and Jesus is made with the picture of the servant and the son. But Hebrews also speaks about the house. Most first century Jews would think of the temple when, when people talked about God's house. But Hebrews says the true house isn't a building of brick and stone. It's a community of people. In this house of God, in this community of people, Moses served as a faithful servant. And what's the ministry of a servant? It's to prepare things. Prepare the meals, prepare rooms, prepare the garden. His work is always looking forward to something or someone who is yet to come. In contrast, Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And what's the role of the son? It's to take over everything, to possess it, to use it for whatever he likes because the house was made for him. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The house is a bold and confident family. There's no hint of doubt in the belief that God's new world has come to birth in Jesus. That's the stance of a Christian. But what about Moses? 1,500 years before Christ, what was Moses' faith based on? Well, it's interesting to see how Hebrews sees Moses' actions in terms of an implicit loyalty to the Messiah himself. Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Moses was looking ahead to his reward. Like Abraham and the others before him, Moses was acting on the kind of faith that knew God has planned something better than anything we can accomplish ourselves. He looked forward to the moment when the true king would come and through him, Israel and the whole world would be set free from all slavery. Yes, Moses is the symbol of the old covenant, but he lived by the new covenant. Moses and the Old Testament saints did understand the new covenant, though it hadn't yet been historically laid down when they were alive. 
They were saved by the death of Christ just as much as we are. And they lived by his life just as much as we're asked to do. Matthew 17 talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. The transfiguration followed Jesus' prediction of his own death and the announcement of the way of discipleship. The appearance of Moses and Elijah signifies that the law and the prophets were supporting Jesus in his redemptive mission. They had been willing to enter into his sufferings just as we are asked to do. Not as a penalty, but as a privilege. Hebrews 11.25 says Moses chose to be mistreated to suffer affliction. But again, all of this is a shadow of Christ's attitude and work when he came to complete God's redemptive plan. Jesus humbled himself. The amazing humility of God's son is summed up in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this poem, Paul gives us a glimpse into the mind and the attitudes of Christ. Jesus left the glory of heaven and emptied himself. The eternal God became incarnate. He became a man. He remained divine, but chose to become a slave so that we might be set free. He gave up the right to life and humbled himself, becoming obedient to death so that we might live. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And his decision to do this is all about what it really means to be divine. He's the God of unconditional, sacrificial and self-giving love. So how should we respond to this unconditional love and care of God? Well, the Israelites of Exodus repeatedly elevated their own desires above God's heart and presence. They sought God only for what he could do for them. They were only happy when he was doing what they wanted, when they wanted. And the cycle continued until God got absolutely fed up. In Exodus 33, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Moses' response shows what his heart cry was. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. The here was a desert, an arid, inhospitable place, a place of hardship, no comfort or pleasure. There was no abundance, no natural resources, no security. And yet Moses declared, I would rather have your presence here in this land 
than be in a land of abundance and beauty without your presence. Moses sought God for who he is. After just one encounter at the burning bush, all Moses wanted was to know God intimately and to fulfill God's purposes in his life. So what about us? Every one of us born into this world is born operating on the old covenant. Under the new covenant, we're made right with God if we truly put our faith in his son. But being a Christian doesn't mean that you will automatically operate on the new covenant. The new covenant is freely available to us in the Lord, but we have to learn how to operate on it. See, from childhood, we've all been taught that the way to become proficient, to be competent, and to accomplish all of our aims and desires is to develop our self-confidence. What did the Apostle Paul say? Put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in yourself. Under the new covenant, nothing comes from ourselves. Everything comes from God, including the talents and abilities that he gives us. At its core, the new covenant is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the character and life of Jesus fully lived through his people. As a man, Jesus said he could do nothing of himself, but only in complete dependence upon the Father. In the same way, when we have no confidence in our flesh, then we discover that we can have full confidence in the one who's able to do anything through us. In all we are and all that we do, we have to fix our eyes and our identity on Christ. Resting in the finished work and the outpoured life of the resurrected indwelling Christ. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. But our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. If we're going to do it at all, it is God at work in us that makes us act and produce this kind of new covenant living. Every day, we need to choose to live by the new covenant, to live by faith in Jesus. Someone once said, you know, it's not difficult to live the Christian life. It's utterly impossible. Only one could ever live that life. And he wants to live it again in and through every believer. So where are you on your Exodus journey? Do you find yourself seeking God for what he can do for you? Is your highest priority to know God intimately? To seek the promise of God's presence and fulfill his purpose for your life? As you examine your life, do you see it operating on the new covenant or are there elements of the old covenant at work? Hebrews 12.2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus bore unimaginable 
punishment for our sin. He endured the agony and the shame for you and for me because we are the joy that was set before him. Can I have the band up, please? Tom mentioned we're on the run up to Easter, and I just want to finish as the band's getting ready. Finish with some words by a modern Roman Catholic priest, Father James Cavanagh. I believe in God and the power of his victory in Christ. I believe in a resurrection that rescued man from death. I believe in an Easter that opened man to hope. I believe in a joy that no threat of man can take away. I believe in a life that lingers after this life, a life that God has fashioned for his friends. I believe in eternity and the hope that it affords. Do you have that assurance expressed in those words? If not, if anybody's listening and you haven't that assurance, speak to somebody today. Don't wait. I thank God that his amazing grace is available to all who put their faith in his son. So let's worship the one who's made it all possible. The one who was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. The one who will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Come Lord Jesus. Jesus.